All right, please raise your hand if you would if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Um, and if, you, uh, if you'd like one to take home with you, take the one we give you. Uh, we wanna, want you to keep that as our gift to you. Billy Graham said, let the study of the Bible become, more cent- or become central rather in your life, not just so you will know it, but that you will obey it. And so we want to make sure everyone has a Bible to take home with them, uh, that they may hide the word in their hearts. Um, As we get started, why don't you turn with us to uh, Luke chapter 9. We'll start in verse 7, Luke chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you again, as Lance said, that we do have an election coming up. Uh, We're certainly not here to tell anybody how to vote. Uh, We... um, are determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Um, and nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus was a registered Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or whatever, right? But it does tell us um, to contend for justice. And so there are certain things like uh, the issue of life. If you uh, would like some uh, guidance on uh, which, um, which Candidates perhaps um, uh, would see things uh, as far as the image of God like, why, like we do, um, like the scripture teaches that, uh, that every human being from the very moment that the, those first cells split is a unique image bearer of the everlasting God. Um, we have we can help you uh, to see some of those guys if that's important to you. There's also some propositions if you need maybe perhaps some guidance on what um, the Bible might have to say about some of these issues. We certainly want to help you out with that. So you can see us in the church office. Um, you can see uh, Clint or Lance or um, uh, Don De Palma or any of our elders, and we should have some information for you that hopefully would will be helpful, but we're certainly not... Um, here to promote that, um, but because we live in a place in which we have that freedom to participate in government, we have a responsibility to do so. Um, Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John are beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. O God of all power and authority, we submit ourselves to you this morning. And we plead with you to meet with us here and now, despite our doubts, our fears, and our confusions. Thank you for this day that we give to worship and to honor you among each other, and with your bride on this hill and around the world. God, grant us that we might be faithful to know you and to serve you even right here in this place. God, be present with us this morning as we examine your word. May your truth overcome our doubts and the doubts of those around us and drive us to sincere confession and keep us from wandering. Father, God, send your spirit so that we might have understanding and we give you this time to open our hearts um, and to hear your voice and to serve you faithfully in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Any study of Herod can become quite interesting. Uh, The family of Herod was a royal dynasty in Israel and although they were under the authority of the Roman Empire, they still held the honor of being a royal Family. That term Herod's a proper name for this family, uh, and it means heroic or sprung from a hero. When we first read about Herod the Great and Matthew when Jesus was born, we're going to read about one of his sons today, but let's start with Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod, was, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and, and, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we're talking about Herod the Great here. Uh, and this dude was insecure. He had a marked lack of empathy. That's a bad combination. Uh, insecure, no empathy, that's bad. Uh, he had spies that went after anyone who opposed him. At one point, you'll never believe this, he actually forpaid people uh, from meeting with people of another household. Uh, they actually would not be allowed, households could not mingle together um, privately. And they even kept uh, the, the, the people that the spies had perceived as threats from walking together and interacting personally. We wouldn't know anything about anything like that. We've never experienced that. Um, but anyhow, he probably viewed his, that was sarcasm, by the way, just in case you don't know. Um, and he probably viewed his brutal acts of heroism, uh, or as heroism, um, or, or at least he tried to convince himself that he was a hero. The Jews knew of a coming Messiah, and that was a threat to him. He had it pretty well off. I mean, his father was Antipor, who was the, he was an uh, Edomaeum. Uh, which was a descendant of Esau. And the Jews looked at the Edomans as suspiciously as these half-Jews. And although uh, they had accepted all of the Jewish religious rites and practices. So when the Magi show up asking for the newborn king of the Jews, that was a threat to Herod the Great. Because Herod's supposed to be king of the Jews, right? Let's continue on in Matthew. Verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years, or in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time it had, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Some skeptics reject the massacre of the innocents because the only place in history that we read of it is in Matthew. In fact, even Josephus, who wrote extensively about King Herod, doesn't mention this. But what we need to keep in mind is that Herod was brutal. And if he wasn't a sociopath, he sure acted like one. So in a survey of his character... It might not have been a big enough deal. It wouldn't, even, it wouldn't have even been the only time he had killed a bunch of children. The reason Matthew would have recorded it is because Matthew is written to Jews, some of which might have remembered that uh, or had been told about it by parents or grandparents. So that would give them a time stamp. For Luke was written to a Gentile for a Gentile, so it probably made no difference as far as proving Jesus. 
Herod was just a bad guy and they knew it. Um, and Josephus was a historian. So you think that our historians recorded every bad thing that Hitler ever did in history. You think we know everything? No, right? But do you think that 50 years from now, every evil thing that Vladimir, Vladimir Putin does is going to be recorded for us to read? We can't even keep up with it now, right? So there's just not enough time and resources, and we have a much more efficient way of recording the events than Josephus did. He had to write everything down by hand. So just because Matthew's the only one who took the time to handwrite about the massacre of the innocents doesn't mean it didn't happen. One of the first rules of textual criticism is that if a historical manuscript contains something unique, as long as it doesn't contradict other historical accounts, it's considered reliable until there's something that refutes it. And even then, it's not dismissed, it's simply looked at more critically and everything is looked at um, to try to come up with, with what is most reliable. But all of that said, Herod was not an awesome king. He was mean. Today we're going to look at his seventh son. Also mean, right? Um, his name is Antipas. And when Herod the Great died of a horribly painful and disfiguring case of syphilis, his kingdom was split into provinces that his different sons had jurisdiction over. And what had happened was that Herod the Great had killed the son uh, that was heir to the kingdom just five, five days before he died. And that created uncertainty as to who would take the throne. He had three other sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, and they appeared before Caesar Augustus in Rome to make claim to their father's throne. And so instead of giving the territory to only one of them, Augustus divided the kingdom between all three. And that's why we have that. Um, and Antipas presided over the region that contained Galilee. So you can see that up there in the, in the top uh, portion there. He also had another region that he was over. Um, and, and all that's going to be more and more important when we get to the arrest of trial of Jesus. But where are we right now? We haven't moved out of what area? Galilee. Right? So this, is, this gives us a, a, a time period and everything. Mark calls Antipas King Herod, which may have been how the Galileans perceived him, but he actually never actually had rights to the royal title. So Luke, Luke refers to him more precisely as Herod the Tetrarch. Interestingly enough, that word that we translate king from Mark can re refer to a Tetrarch, which is just a ruler with less authority than a king. So he's more like a governor of a province. Now Antipas is the Herod that we're dealing with today, and we're going to see that he also had some serious moral failings, but he probably was not the sociopath that his dad was. Um, he did experience some guilt and curiosity and different things, and we're going to see that today. So if you would, uh, let's go ahead and continue. Uh, we'll pick up in Luke 9, verse 7. It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Now we have to start with the immediate context first, uh, and that is the placement of this account in the scriptures. It's interesting because it looks almost parenthetical. We read, we read last week about the sending of the twelve, right? And then the, uh, next week we're going to read about the feeding of the five thousand. Those two accounts go together because Jesus sends them out. They go out and preach, and they return to experience the miracle of multiplying the loaves and fish. But here we have these three verses explaining something that's happening in the background, presumably while the disciples are out preaching in towns and villages. Herod himself heard about all that was happening. So how do we think the word got to him? The disciples are out preaching. Right? Words getting out. The, the, it would stand to reason that that's how he, how the word is spreading because they are being obedient to spreading the word. Now, Mark uh, 6, Mark 6 uh, gives us a little insight here. Same, same account, different, uh, different perspective. King Herod heard of it. 
It says in verse 14, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That's why the miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and others he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Now what had happened? Herod had married a neighboring king's daughter to foster a political alliance with that, relig uh, with that region. It was an arranged marriage. This was a common thing that would take place. Um, but after they were married, um, he, he just wasn't that into her, and he starts hitting on his brother's wife instead of his own. Um, and by the way, that normally creates drama um, when you go after your brother's wife. Um, that's, it sounds outlandish to most of us, but I've done a lot of counseling, and even with Christians, you know, sometimes it's like, wait, you did what? Right? We all create these kinds of dramas. So let's not be too shocked about Herod's illicit marriage. Um, remember that the Herods claimed to be followers of Yahweh. So when he dismissed his own wife to take his brother's wife, not only was it scandalous, it was also illegal and moral and a violation of God's law. And because of that, John the baptizer publicly denounced him for this. This is where it goes downhill for John. Herod was actually afraid of John. So John wasn't, he wasn't going to hurt John. He respected him. He acknowledged him as a holy and religious man. However, Herodias, his illegitimate wife, couldn't stand the public shame that that brought her. It probably made her out to be some sort of a tramp, and rightfully so. And you, you might be asking here at this point, though, why are we going through to, into so much historical detail here? And I want to explain that to you. I, I don't want to tell everybody just a little Bible story and then tell you what to do. That's just not the kind of pastor that I am. Um, what I want is I want for you to know the truth and to be convinced of it. Right? In fact, that's the theme of our series. I want you to embrace the truth that's contained in, God, in God's word so that it will invade our hearts and transform us on its own merits. And so, uh, so we're going to go into just some historical stuff and hopefully it will mean something to us. As we see this message spread by word of mouth, by the preaching of the 12, we see the uh, we see three primary theories developing around the region of Galilee. The first is that John had been raised from the dead. That's probably the predominant theory. Um, the second, though, is that Elijah had appeared. And the third is that the ancient, one of the ancient prophets had risen. Now, if we look at Mark, Herod might have leaned with the majority towards the first one that John had been raised, particularly since he's the one that killed him. It's something it would have haunted him having killed him. I, I imagine that he couldn't shake the anxiety that his sin had come back to haunt him. Has anybody ever done that where you've just committed some great sin and you're just, you kept it hidden and nobody knows and you just had this fear that like it's going to come back to haunt you and it's going to be horrible. You, anybody ever had an experience like that? Well, this is where Herod's at. But this isn't the last time we read of these theories either. In fact, a little later in the chapter, we're going to see the disciples repeat the same theories that Herod did. Uh, in fact, right here in Luke 9, just go, go a few uh, verses over to verse 18. It says, Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and asked him, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And that, of course, leads to Peter's great confession. Verse 20, then he said to him, said to them, rather, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. David Garland said that Jesus is neither Elijah or, the prophet, or a prophet of old is confirmed by the transfiguration scene where Elijah and Moses make cameo appearances in verses 28 to 36. We'll see that in a few weeks. All of this is very significant because it shows that the Jewish people were looking for the signs of the times, right? like us, right? They knew something big was up and they were looking to understand these connections. They saw that the world around them 
or they saw the world around them rather, and they concluded that they were in a special eschatological time. That just means um, like end times, uh, concerning the end times. And we often presume the same thing today. Um, now we don't know when Jesus is coming back, but it seems to be near. His first coming is an important piece of that, and we're waiting for his second coming. Remember that John and Jesus are both Elijah-like figures, and Elijah was important to their understanding of Messiah. And in the end, many of the Jews missed Jesus because they weren't open to the possibility that things might look differently than they had imagined. And I think that's a fair warning for us as well. We need to be careful not to hang on to certain things too tightly as far as how they are going to appear. We know he's coming back, there's no question. But how exactly that looks, there's some question, and we need to be open. Uh, Herod wasn't alone. There's a lot of skepticism taking place in that time. Uh, some of that was sincere curiosity, right? And some of it was rooted in opposition to Christ. Now, sincere curiosity is why Luke wrote his gospel. That's not a bad thing. Luke 1, 3 and 4, remember this, says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. There are also rumors taking place concerning the identity of Jesus, right? And mis misinformation is one of our adversary's greatest tools. It happened in the early church because Christians spoke of communion as partaking of the body and blood of Jesus. We're going to partake today, right? Um, but because of the way they spoke of it, they were seen as cannibals and vampires to a lot of people, and that led to persecution. Today, uh, some of the things that we get called are bigots and homophobes and racists, right? And we're not called that because any of those things are true. They're not. None of those things are true. But we're called, for example, racists because many, many years ago, there were rich Southern Democrats in the South, and they had their churches on a leash, and they had weak pastors that used the Bible to justify slavery. And then later, the same kind of people did the same thing with segregation. And that's what the enemy used to to stigmatize all Christians, right? But what they ignore is the fact that the majority of pastors and churches in the United States have always rejected those things. And they, many have pointed to the fact that Moses was married to a black woman and God punished Aaron and Miriam for ridiculing that in Numbers, 11, or Numbers 12. rather. Or, or like in Galatians chapter 3 where it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That, that, that makes us all equal. We, we can't look at another human being and say that they're less than us. And yet, the stigma is, is, uh, is targeted to us. We're also called homophobes because we won't reject Biblical sexual practices and prohibitions. Homophobe. What's a phobia? That's a fear. None of us is afraid of gay people. Like, that's not a thing. In fact, we don't love them any less than anyone else. We recognize that we're just as guilty as sin. But in the same way that we should never justify our sin and make it okay... We're also not going to do that with the sins of other people. That wouldn't be fair. The reason that we don't try to remove sinfulness from unbiblical behaviors is because if we were to do that, we would be robbing Jesus of his work on the cross. When we address sin, the reason we do that is because it gives us an opportunity to put the grace and forgiveness of God on display. When we acknowledge sin, we illuminate the cross it isn't to condemn anyone, but to reveal the need that we all have for God's work of forgiveness and restoration. But the accusation gets leveled against us. They call us bigots because we refuse to reject God's created order. You can make a man look like a woman. 
You can make a woman look like a man. But you will never be able to change their genetic makeup. You will never be able to change their real gender. God created us male and female. It's very clear. The, the, our DNA proves it. He didn't invent a countless number of genders. When we refuse to reject God's purposes, that's not bigotry because a true Christian will not confront that with hatred or disdain. We love all people. And those who either suffer from gender dysphoria or have been seduced into believing a lie about their own sexuality have, like the rest of us, a need for restoration. And restoration is a beautiful gift that we would like them to receive and experience and enjoy just like, just like we have. And a little side note on that. We understand the inconsistencies. That whole union of LGBTQ plus 2 agenda, that's, it's illogical and contradictory on, on the surface. The LGB part is predicated on the theory that I was born this way and you can't change me. Well, the T believes that I was born the wrong way and I must be able to change. But they've married them to oppose us. Those of us who believe in God's created order. <coughs> Again, we do this in love. Our job is to lovingly point people to the cross and we can't do that by neglecting to call sin what it is. Our attitude towards sin are rooted in love. But that won't stop people from believing misinformation and lies about us. And we need to understand that. The same thing was happening to Jesus and the disciples back then. We see the theories about who Jesus is beginning to spread. But there, there are other rumors that grow as well. Uh, there are intentional lies that are spread. Just like what happens today. The people that wanted Jesus dead spread the lie that he was trying to start a rebellion against Rome, which is what they actually wanted Messiah to do. So he didn't do it, and they accused it of him, or they accused him of it. To... The people who rejected Jesus wanted Messiah to overthrow Rome, but they rejected him as Messiah and then used the thing that they were hoping Messiah would do to get Jesus arrested and crucified. Got it? Right? I, and that lie didn't die with Jesus. They accused and persecuted Christians throughout the empire for it for three centuries. So some skeptics are truly curious, but others are skeptical to oppose Christ. We oftentimes condescend to those skeptics because we've examined the facts. And most of us are, are intelligent enough, we've looked into it. We didn't just say, oh, Jesus, yeah, I'll follow that. We, like, right, we looked into it. We've examined the facts. We found the gospel, gospel to be true and reasonable. We've read the scriptures and we found them to be reliable. We've studied Jesus and found him to be God. But we recognize, we have to recognize that some of that goes beyond the power of simple observation. The Holy Spirit was also at work in our lives and is. So it's important that we learn to empathize with the skeptic. Our, our views go against the cultural conventional wisdom that they've become convinced of. The opposition has been really good at persuading people to believe things that, if you look at them closely enough, are really absurd. Right? And when we condescend to the skeptics, we're not acknowledging the cunning nature of the one behind the lies that are being believed. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. We should respect them. Let's move on to verse 9. Luke 9, verse 9. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, Herod's not bragging here about the assassination of John. That was not a proud moment for him. Mark explains it in a little more detail. Let's read it. Mark 6, verse 16. It's Mark 6. 
starting in verse 16. It says, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias and his brother, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. But when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you. Up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath, oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison. And behold, uh, or rather, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Herod's dealing with a guilty conscience. Here's, here's where his sin had led him to. His illicit wife's daughter, Salome, does a uh, presumably seductive dance for him at his birthday party where all the rich and famous people are in attendance, and he swears to give her whatever she wants up to half the kingdom. I think it's safe to assume he may have been drinking. Um, and, and, and Salome then goes to her mother, Herodias, to see what she should ask for. And because of her seething anger towards John the baptizer, she doesn't bother with half the kingdom. She wants John's head. I've had people make me pretty mad before. And I'm not going to lie, there have been times I've wanted revenge. But I've actually never wanted somebody's head on a platter. Uh, that's a whole different level of grudge holding. And Herod didn't want to do it. But he's thinking, you know, how could he look, how would he look in front of his distinguished party guests if he doesn't keep his promise? I don't know. I think they might understand. I, I, I think I would rather hear an excuse than see that mess. Like, couldn't he just say, like, whoa, Salome, like, maybe, maybe I've had a little too much to drink here, Salome. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sweetie. Do you think you could ask for something a little less disturbing than a severed head? Like, right? That's some Old Testament savagery. <laughs> At any rate, Herod acquiesces and he gives, uh, he, he, John's killed, uh, his head becomes a prize, and his headless body is put in a tomb. Herod's recalling all of this. He's probably feeling the immense guilt. He's not He's not thinking, well, maybe I didn't really kill him, right? Like that, he's thinking he came back to haunt him. He knew John was dead. Like, that's not the kind of death that you get wrong. Like, I don't know, check his pulse. Like, that's, you, he's, right? It's a flesh wound. Um, Herod knew, Herod knew that John was dead. And Herod knew that it was wrong and it was unjust. You know, we know, we've all done this. Our emotional response to guilt is often to justify what we've done, right? Rather than actually being sorry for it. We make excuses. And I wonder if that's why Herod later on is mocking Jesus. Because he had, he had worked so hard to convince himself that what he did was okay. You know, we cannot experience forgiveness without acknowledging our guilt. Without acknowledging our sin. Herod had an opportunity. He could have made a, a sincere confession like Peter did. Here's the thing. Herod's feelings didn't actually matter. Neither do ours. If we've sinned, or if we're in sin, we're, we're guilty. It doesn't matter whether we feel, feel guilty or not. We're guilty. But forgiveness 
trumps guilt. And so the inverse is also true. If we're forgiven, we're not guilty whether we feel forgiven or not. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. I don't care if we feel forgiven. I do care if we are forgiven. Feeling forgiven is a bonus. It's a wonderful benefit. But the reality that we're looking for as sinners is the reality of God's forgiveness. Because if God forgives, we are forgiven. And Herod asked the right questions. Who is this guy? It's a good question. Not only that, but he sought him out. That's a good reaction. But in the end, his wants and his needs overcome his curiosity, and he's unable to see the truth. Herod's question recalls the question of the disciples after Jesus calmed the storm. Luke 8, 24. You remember this. We looked at it a while back. They went to, and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm and he said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands the wind and the waves and the water and they obey him. But see the disciples, they arrived at the truth. The difference in what we confess makes all the difference in the world. Do we confess Jesus as a great moral teacher, somebody who's legendary, somebody to help us to live better lives? Or do we confess that he is the God of the universe who will come to judge the living and the dead? Herod claims to want the truth about Jesus and he seeks him out, but curiosity isn't enough. A mere acknowledging kind of a belief is not enough to save. True faith includes trust and results in action. Faith equals faithfulness. Herod believed in Jesus, and none of the popular theories were good enough for him. But we'll see in chapter 23 that he still failed to arrive at the right conclusions about Jesus. The disciples and all the people, including Herod, they were all skeptics. Everyone was a skeptic. The difference is that the disciples examined the facts, and they progressed beyond skepticism. And Herod never did. Herod was haunted by his skepticism. And that's where a lot of skeptics are today. If, if we're like the disciples, we've moved past our skepticism. So we've got to ask, how can we help to lead these skeptics who've all skinned, sinned against God as we have? How can we help them to move from what have you done with Jesus to what will you do with Jesus now? There are a lot of people out there that are like Herod. They're haunted by their past. Herod sought Jesus. Many say they seek Jesus. They, they like the idea of Jesus. But they try to avoid the real Jesus altogether to avoid guilt. The gospel has the power to replace their guilt with God's forgiveness. There are a few people who've never asked Herod's question. Or, yeah. Gosh, I don't know what I, what's my problem with my notes today. Um, there are a few people who have never asked the question about Jesus, who is this? We've all asked that. Almost all people in humanity who have ever heard the name Jesus have asked, who is Jesus? goes along with Luke's theme, that you might be certain. And in the end, John Nolan says of Herod, he is not open to the true answer to his question. And maybe there's somebody here who today is a little skeptical, asking the question, who is Jesus? Are you open to the true answer to your question? We all know how difficult it is to accept the truth when we've been convinced of something that is untrue. You know, I think one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing about being human, is admitting when we're wrong. Like Herod, we're all left to judge whether Peter's confession is right. If it's not right, Jesus is of no consequence to us. But if Peter is right, the implications are earth-shattering and require us to fall in humble submission before him. Herod took the path of least resistance. 
I imagine that he expected God to give him a pass since so many other people also rejected Jesus. But listen, we will never convince God that it was okay to follow a lie because everyone else did. That's, that's not how God works. A popular lie is still a lie. And we're going to see later in Luke that Jesus is told that Herod's looking for him. And Jesus calls Herod a fox, something deceitful and cunning. Something that will help to cause you to believe a lie. It's how the enemy works. So this morning I want us to ask ourselves if we're more like Peter or more like Herod. What are we going to confess? Do we believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is? Or do we believe what the Bible says about us? That's hard to accept. Right? Look at Genesis 6, 5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We, are all, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Romans 3, verses 10, and 12, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Many of you have this one memorized. Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John 1.10, 1 John rather, 1 John 1.10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, we are just as guilty as Herod. You may have never asked for someone's severed head on a plate, but you may as well have. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's why we need the cross. For those of us that have confessed that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, well, today we are going to be partaking of communion. And I would say if you're a skeptic, we would ask that you would please let that pass you by. Jesus isn't something that you try on like a pair of shoes. You either surrender fully to him or you do not. Matthew 12.30 says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And so the bread that we partake of represents the body of Jesus that was beaten and abused on our behalf. In fact, if you look at it, there are little holes in it from the way they bake it. And, 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 and it's a reminder of those, those piercings in his wrists and his feet, of the piercing in his side. The cup represents his blood, which was poured out. Imagine, think of his blood on our behalf dripping down that cross. Because of our sin, his blood is on all of our hands because we have sinned. But the miracle is that the blood isn't what makes us guilty. The blood is what cleanses us. And the Bible warns us not to take communion in another in an unworthy manner not to take it in a way that doesn't discern the body and blood of Jesus that was given for us so if you don't yet know Jesus we would respectfully ask that you please spare yourself of the judgment of partaking unworthily but if you have repented we ask that you receive gladly and partake 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So as we do this, I want you to hang on to the elements and reflect upon them. Just hang on to them. We'll, we'll take them together. But as we pass those elements out, examine yourself. If you, if you need to repent of something, you can do that right now. In fact, if you have a problem with a brother or sister that you need to make right, 
most of you have a phone with you. Pull it out. There's time. Pull it out. Send a little text. Hey, I need to make this right. Hey, I'm sorry. Hey, hey, I, I blew it. Or at least just purpose in your heart that you're going to go home today and make it right. You see, part of receiving God's grace is acknowledging our need of it. Herod didn't acknowledge his need. He felt guilty, but he didn't acknowledge his need. When we see who Jesus is, we all acknowledge our need. And so as we partake, know the fullness of Christ's forgiveness that has erased all of our guilt, all of our sin, and has made us new in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our holy God, we ask that you would help us acknowledge our sinfulness and thus receive your grace. We ask that our questions may be sincere, that you will draw us into a right understanding of your character. And we ask also, Lord, that as we face skeptics and critics, that you would fill us with love for them. And also for the wisdom and knowledge that we may give them reasonable answers for the hope that lies in us. Lord, may we also be prepared to be abused by your critics and be willing to suffer for your name's sake. Oh God, we thank you that in our weakness you are strong. Keep us strong. Make us holy and help us to honor you. Oh Lord, be present with us now as we prepare to receive your communion that is set before us. We thank you that Jesus has removed our great, great debt of sin and called us to follow him. And thank you that your grace has covered us with the blood of Jesus that was poured out. That horrible, dark, wretched, beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy feast in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Sinful man, God. 
eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen not to says, when the hour came, he reclined at table with and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and we given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's partake. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we cry out, come. We long to serve at your feet both here and forever in eternity with all humility and all gratitude. We give ourselves to you and on your terms to be in your kingdom forever. God, we surrender our doubts and our fears to you. Cause us to learn to rely upon you as we seek to obey you and to confess the Lord Jesus daily. Lord, prepare us for that mission field that is set before us, that we may confess you daily in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.